Welcome to the Digital Euro Podcast by the Digital Euro Association. In this podcast, you will learn about the disruption of technology in the monetary and financial system. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy the episode. Hello to the audience and our great panelists for our um, panel, CBDC and privacy considerations for an international landscape. Today, we will delve into the tensions between privacy preservation and policy compliance within the context of CBDCs. We will explore the, their implications in the alignment with the protection of fundamental human rights and the challenges posed by cross-jurisdictional interoperability. Before we start with the discussion, I would like to ask our great panelists to introduce themselves. And let's start with Jennifer. Thank you. Thank you, Anne-Sophie. It's lovely to be here. Thank you to the Digital Euro Association for hosting us today. And I'm pleased to be joined on the stage by the Digital Pound Foundation as well um, on this very critical topic of privacy. And I know we're slated for about an hour. I imagine with this group, we can probably go a couple of days on this, this topic in particular. Um, so briefly, Digital Dollar Project uh, is a nonprofit um, focused on catalyzing discussion and research around a U.S. central bank digital currency. We're located outside of Washington, D.C., and we do this um, through general think tank activities, panels like this one, um, authoring papers and conducting studies. But really what I think is our unique contribution to the discussion um, is our technical experimentation. So in partnership with our private sector stakeholders, we execute requirement-driven experimentation around U.S. central bank digital currency, both looking at um, technical design choices and their related policy uh, design options as well. Um, so in respect to today's discussion, um, our most recent work this year has been focused on um, trying to emulate and determine whether a central bank digital currency can indeed be private. Um, so I just wanted to take one um, additional moment uh, to share that um, if there is to be a United States central bank digital currency, the digital dollar project believes deeply that it must adopt American ideals of ideal privacy, which we'll talk more about what those are today, um, and adapt financial privacy policies to a new digital environment. Um, as we all know, consumers benefit profoundly from having privacy, uh, just as businesses and investors, um, fiduciaries and governments uh, benefit in a myriad of ways from confidentiality. Um, it is important for us to retain those benefits while striking the appropriate balance between privacy and confidentiality and other social goods. Um, we believe it can be a key differentiator, actually, um, of regional central bank digital currencies, um, and that conversely, not having these attributes would ultimately result in the failure of adoption, um, particularly in the United States if the digital dollar was released. Thank you. Thank you. David, would you go next? Sure. So um, thank you again for inviting me to speak. So I am here representing the Digital Pound Foundation, which is a, a trade association of organizations who are uh, supporting and encouraging the, um, the development of the digital pound, if, if one comes to exist in the UK, um, and also looking at, uh, at, at cryptocurrencies. Um, so I lead the Identity and Privacy Working Group for the Digital Pound Foundation, and 
We are um, looking to start from first principles around um, the relationship of, of identity and, and privacy. Um, so we're looking to understand where the problems are today with today's payment systems, um, what the privacy considerations are in, in what we have and we use um, today, and where how we can improve. Um, what, what are the principles that should drive the improvement of, of a payment system? Um, and really, this is quite a, a unique opportunity in, in history. So payment systems have evolved over hundreds of years. Um, but I think the emergence of digital um, platforms and digital transactions and their adoption on a huge scale by, by, by billions of people, um, it, it's a, we have a moment in history to think about this and to think about the nature of money and to think about the nature of, of uh, personal data in the context of payments and, and what the rights and responsibilities are. Rights of the citizen, of course, to privacy. I think uh, you know all, all liberal-minded uh, democracies believe in that. But with, with, with rights come responsibilities, and we have to get the balance right. Um, so, uh, very interested to to join the discussion today and, uh, and and try and dig into that a little more. Thank you very much, David. Steve, would you go next? Thanks, Anne Sophie, and likewise, thank you very much for inviting me to to participate in this conversation. So I'm the managing director of a firm called Consult Hyperion. We are um, subject matter experts in payments and identity. We've uh, been doing that for about 30, 40 years. So um, we've got a long track record, long institutional memory, um, and have had the, the privilege of being involved in all sorts of interesting projects like M-Pesa in Kenya, uh, like uh, enabling open loop payments um, on the transit infrastructure in London and then many other many other cities. My, my own kind of, I guess, area of expertise where I tend to focus is digital identity. And I've been working on that for um, 15 years or so. Um, and ha had the, the privilege of being involved in projects around the world, uh, some in some in uh, sort of Western countries, developed countries and some outside of the in, in other places. Um, and then more recently, as an organisation and, and, in, and myself as well, we've, we've we started to get involved in um, CBDC projects. We are working for a number of central banking organisations, um, and you know we we have a foot in kind of those those two important areas, things that underpin the digital economy, payments, identity, two fundamental enablers. And so, in CBDC, those things come together in a sense, and um, we're involved in bringing our kind of expertise and experience in both of those into those projects, looking at how you build nation scale um, systems, um, how you enable things, how, how, how you can build a CBDC that's gonna be accepted, what are the governance and frameworks you need around that. Um, privacy obviously is a very important aspect. So it's great we're talking about that today. And then um, uh, uh, another area of particular interest to us is the need to support offline payments, which, which, which we probably won't talk on much today, but we, we just published, um, in fact, BIS published a, a report that we wrote on um, offline CBDC in May. So if you go to the BIS website, you'll be able to download that and get a sense of what we're about. Thank you very much. Jonas, last but not least. Yeah, thanks, Anna-Sophie. And first, let me really thank um, the whole um, yeah, DDP and DPF team. So it's really great that we have, like, for the first time, um, a collaborative event, So which 
basically spans across the whole, yeah, almost the whole world. I don't want to say the whole world, but at least very important jurisdiction. So thank you very much and really, really happy to have you guys uh, as, as partners. So I'm here today in my role as uh, the chairman and co-founder of the Digital Euro Association. You have already heard um, heard a lot um, about, you know, um, the I would say like our UK and US counterparts in this regard. So, um, yeah, we are also as a think tank looking very detailed into CBDC and uh, stablecoin related topics. Also for us, the privacy topic is very, very important. So we actually released the CBDC manifesto um, last year, which provided like uh, guidelines for, you know, from our side, the optimal CBDC design, which also represents and values a specific, you know, liberal uh, liberal values in this regard. And here privacy is definitely the core. And I think this has uh, is like a great chance in the context of CBDC to, um, you know, to increase and improve privacy on payments or at least to preserve the privacy we have for cash today with payments. And I'm really looking forward to the panel discussions today. Thank you. So we will just start with the questions. Um, how would you define privacy and in specific in the how private are payments today? I would ask the questions to everybody of you because with the cultural backgrounds we have here today, I think we will get different answers or maybe not. Uh, Jennifer, would you start? Sure, those are two really big questions. So I'm actually going to um, maybe start since this was an is an open audience and I, i'm not sure of the level of knowledge about central bank digital currencies with our audience so just to make sure we're all um using the same definitions um a quick uh, uh a quick defining of central bank digital currency in comparison to stable coins and cryptocurrencies with which folks might be familiar with right so central bank digital currency is a digital form of a country's Fiat currency, it's a claim on a central bank. Um, so instead of printing money, a central bank would issue digital coins or accounts backed by the full faith and credit of that government. Government. Um, what I do want to make clear, um, because this comes up a lot in US-centric conversations, um, is that the form that central bank digital currency will take is still to being determined across the world. And quite frankly, in the United States, whether or not there is a CBDC and what form it might take is also still being um, investigated. So whether or not CBDC would be um, take a tokenized form or an account-based form or hybrid of both is still under experimentation. So I just like to make that really clear when we have a broad audience, what we're talking about um, and what this current state is on CBDC. Um, and then finally, I would just note that there are two applications commonly uh, discussed around central bank digital currency. One is wholesale central bank digital currency, which is a transaction between a financial bank and other financial institutions. The second is retail CBDC, which is person to person or consumer to merchant and accessible to the general public. I imagine today for our audience, we'll be talking a lot about retail application of CBDC, but it's really important to note that in wholesale application, there is always a discussion about privacy to be had there as well. Um, and for folks interested in more in-depth conversation about that, I would point you to the Digital Dollar Projects experiment with the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation released last November. So, um, now that that's out of the way, um, privacy. Um, so privacy can mean so many 
th different things, as you noted, Anne Sophie. Um, so for digital dollar projects research, when we talk about privacy, it's referring to the ability of an individual organization to control how their personal information is collected, used, disclosed, or shared with a third party. Um, I often like to note that privacy should not be confused with anonymity. Um, which we generally define as keeping identity private, but not activities. And for the purpose of today's conversation, um, I think it's important to note Digital Dollar Project articulated in our um, May 2020 white paper that a completely anonymous, untraceable payment system would certainly protect personal privacy, but such a system would also facilitate illegal and illicit behavior. So when we talk about privacy in the context of CBDC systems, I encourage folks to talk about it through the lens of financial privacy, because as we all know, a central bank digital currency is likely to generate data about its users' financial transactions in very similar ways that commercial banks and non-banks do today. Um, so again, understanding that balance between financial privacy and transparency um, allows us to um, properly contextualize, I will say, and benchmark against the status quo against, uh, rather than against an idealized concept of absolute financial privacy. And when we talk about the current state of privacy in the U.S., which I'll, I will um, punt uh, forward a couple minutes, I think um, often um, the understanding of what the current state of privacy is, um, is a mismatch um, in terms of the reality of privacy today. Um, so I'll look forward to, to that conversation. And then finally, um, I wanted to just note in the context of the definition of privacy, um, constantly throughout the course of discussion in regards to central bank digital currency, I go back to the framing question of privacy from whom, when, and how. And this is because as we think about privacy um, and the need for privacy, anonymity, and security, which I'm sure we'll touch about today as well, um, is that those definitions and needs are role-centric. So what an individual user wants or defines as privacy will be different and often at odds with what the system provider or the financial institution or the regulatory oversight might want. Um, and I think today what we'll talk about in more depth is um, this really amazing moment that David talked about earlier, which is can new technologies allow for digital currencies to be design designed um, for situational privacy and can policy be adjusted to accommodate um, that level of technical design in our fully digitized future? Um, so I'll just stop there around definition of privacy. Um, I think current state uh, will, will vary differently among the three of us, but Jonas, David, and Steve, um, please, definitions of privacy in your regions. Well, um, I think you gave a very, a very clear uh, definition of, of privacy, I'm, I'm sure. Um, uh, you know, I won't. I won't attempt to uh, to, to match that in terms of accuracy. I, I think I'll take it from a different perspective, from from a user perspective. Uh, I think I think privacy is something that we all um, recognise immediately once it's been violated. Um, you know, privacy is one of those difficult concepts. Um, you, you you can't have 
absolute privacy you can't do anything in the world if you if you won't share any information or or, or speak to anybody or, or if you're just going to hide in a room um that's that's the only way you have absolute privacy so as soon as you step out into the world what what are you prepared to share uh, in in return for what it is you need or want um we know when our we know when our privacy has been violated it makes us very unhappy uh, and and uh, and we all get uh, we get very cross about it, and, and rightly so. Um, but I don't know how many people in our panelists uh, uh, have actually read the last privacy policy that that came up on the screen when they were told to accept it and agree to the terms. Um, it you know the, the, this, the current situation is is far from ideal. Um, every, every time we want a new service. We are faced with small print that we don't read. Nobody reads them. Let's 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 be realistic. Um, so, how do we improve on that? How do we, how do we design so that people's um, privacy is respected, um, but they can actually uh, conduct trades with with the with the safeguards that they need? Um, so that's really that's really the opportunity. Again, going back to what the opportunity is that we have in front of us. Um, how private are payments today? Um, well. I, I don't think I think we've got the we've got the worst of all worlds, haven't we? At the moment, that's probably a controversial statement. I, I don't think uh, payments are, are are designed to be private, uh, but uh, I don't think people necessarily uh, mind because payments work well for their needs. So, um, it, by and large, um, the payments infrastructure is is, um, is is working well for you know eighty percent, ninety percent of people's needs. Um, but we also have um, fraud and money laundering and criminal finance using the payments infrastructure, abusing the payments infrastructure. Um, and, and that is a, a massive challenge. It's a societal problem. It's a, a global problem. Um, and it's one that needs to be considered when designing a new form of, of money. So um, um, again, you know, a, a, probably not, a, not a, a, a slightly vague description of privacy, but one that hopefully describes the emotions that, uh, that that people feel about it. Thank you. Steve, do you agree? Um, yes, I'm going to come at it from a similar but slightly different angle. So, uh, and, and Sophie mentioned human rights at the very beginning of the call. And of course, there is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that the UN published. Um, and in Article 12, it describes what, what privacy is. And it talks about... Um, prevention of arbitrary interference in people's lives, you know, that your in your family, in your home, in your correspondence, you don't have arbitrary uh, interference, um, whether that's from a government or some other organisation. And I think that's, that's a really useful kind of um, uh, definition to refer to, because it's not about anonymity, it's about letting people, giving people liberty, letting them get on with their lives without the worry that you know, unexpected, untoward, inappropriate things will, will, will happen out of their control. And then I guess the issue is that um, the internet uh, has basically undermined that. You know, we unintentionally, well, I, don't, I don't think we set out to build an internet. I mean, you know, back, back in the day, Tim Berners-Lee, when he was in CERN, wasn't thinking about, you know, the billions of people that will be, you know, generating, spewing out loads of data. And so what we've, what we've ended up is we've got an internet where these massive pools of data, and massive pools of data that are being exploited um, without really people uh, having, having sort of um, 
uh, you know, agency over their data, proper engagement, proper transparency about what's happening. And so that has led to a whole bunch of unintended consequences, um, which, which, which we obviously don't want to repeat if we're designing the internet of the future. And I see um, digital currencies as part of, part of that. Um, in terms of one other thing I was going to say, I don't, I don't think it's a, it, it's not a dichotomy. It's not, it's not, is it anonymous or not anonymous? Um, there's a, ter a useful term, pseudonymity, that sits somewhere between anonymity and non-anonymity or transparency, I suppose. And so when we're building systems, I think the idea that we can build things that are pseudonymous, in other words, they're anonymous to the parties that they need to be, um, is really what we should be thinking about. And But with the option that it, with those you know, appropriate governance in the right right context, you can um, you can uh, help us meet those compliance needs. It should, should be should be what we're thinking about, really. And you know, I, I think we have, as David said, we've got the opportunity to to really think through this well, not repeat the mistakes that we've made in the past on on the um, how how um, how much privacy is there in payments today. Um, I mean, I would include cash in there, right? So cash is a form of payment, and obviously that's anonymous. Um, I don't think we necessarily want to um, produce a, something that's uh, an exact copy of cash in terms of all its characteristics digitally. Um, but then when you look at private sector money, which is the thing that most of us use, um, the, the, as, as David said, those things weren't, they were built functionally. They weren't built with, with privacy particularly in mind. And so where we've ended up is you've got different different amounts of data that are accessible to different stakeholders in the ecosystem. So the, the data that an issuer sees is different to the data that an acquirer sees. It's different to the data that a payment network sees, for example. Um, now, in terms of how those things impact people's liberties and whether people are being surveilled, um, I, I don't think the primary issues today are actually in the payment network. I think the payment networks are highly regulated and generally behave quite well. Um, and certainly the banks that I've um, uh, worked for are very concerned about what they do with their customer data. Um, it's a matter of reputation for them that they're not abusing customer data. Um, and so whilst there's a risk there, perhaps, I think a lot of the issues actually sit outside of the payment network. Um, uh, what else was I going to say? I think. I mean, I think that's yeah. So I think that sort of lays out my my view. I don't. I don't think this. I don't think we should be going for an anonymous system. I think we should be looking at how we can design something that um, enables pseudonymity, so that it, it, it preserves people's freedoms and liberties, um, but also helps us to, um, to to meet the compliance and control and prevent fraud and all that stuff. And I actually think that's possible. And hopefully, we'll get onto that. Yeah, and maybe just just to add on what you what you all said, because I think it really there's not a not a lot to, to be added, um, because the discussion is already quite substantial. So I think there are like these these two two worlds you currently you also described. Like the one is really the digital payments today, right? Which are in the end all, I mean, if we exclude crypto, all via via and bank going via a bank account, right? So be it credit card payments, be it payments via Apple Pay, via bank transfers, etc. And here the privacy is definitely. And lower in a sense that PSPs and intermediaries like know the data. I would agree with you, Steve, that they don't, you know, abuse or, or misuse the data. 
But I mean, there are lots of intermediaries that have like business models that are also dependent on the data, right? So in terms of, of privacy, it's definitely like, you know, not a variant from my perspective that has a very high degree of privacy, but again, kind of depending on how you define the privacy in the first place. And second, of course, there's the other extreme, which is cash, right? Which is fully, fully anonymous, at least until specific limits where you maybe, you know, need to reveal your ID or something if you buy a large car or, 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 or other, other things. Um, and I think this is something we shouldn't forget that we are currently, or it seems we are transitioning into a world where cash is, you know, playing a lower and lower role continuously also as a means of payment. And that's again, not from a central bank perspective, but from a market perspective, there could be a world where in a few decades, maybe cash is not even be there. I, I personally don't hope that because today, due to the privacy advantage, I pay most of my stuff with cash. But there is a likelihood that this could indeed be the case. And then I think we need um, also a digital variant, a digital means of payments that, you know, really provides, doesn't need to be full anonymity, I fully agree, Steve, but at least a higher degree of privacy than the other existing means of payments do. But I'm sure we will go into details in the discussion um, as well. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, Jennifer, how can we collaborate globally to get a common understanding for, for an architecture that integrates CBDC digital identities and that we get one ecosystem, for example? I wish I had the answer to that question. I feel like I uh, would be quite popular if I did. I, I do, before I, I dive into that, I just wanted to push back a little bit on the concept of cash as fully anonymous, because I think, um, again, going back to kind of our fully, our, our, I'll say rapidly digitizing world, I know this doesn't, uh, we are not fully digitized, of course, um, but today, cash, um, you know, it's not anonymous because I have to hand it to another person and that person can see me and, and they know what that transaction is for. When you take cash out of an ATM, you are being recorded. When you spend it at a store um, or a retailer, you are also being recorded. Um, walking from taking that cash out of the ATM to the store you might be spending it on, if you're in the city, you are potentially being recorded in terms of geographic location um, as you are moving uh, to that place. Um, and I, I bring that up. Yeah, I would just screw that slightly. The, the cash itself isn't the thing that enables the surveillance. The surveillance is happening kind of outside of it. Of course, if you and I do a transaction, I hand you some money, then we yes. have to know who each other is by definition. Otherwise, we can't transact. But the cash itself is just the means of exchange. You know, the fact that, I, that so, so, so. I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, so the cash, yeah. you know, and so you can envisage we could, if we could build an anonymous CBDC, it would be the same as cash. So it would still be I'd be, I'd be giving it to you in the context of that transaction. With you know, we might be physically together, so that you know it's me and I know it's you. But but that 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 exchange of information that occurs there isn't facilitated by the by the by the currency. It's it's outside of the outside of the financial transaction. Yes, and I agree with you. But I think that in terms of like the construct of the bearer instrument itself, right? And that a digital bearer instrument allows for certain traceability that a physical dollar does not. In that sense, yes, there the the instrument itself um, is anonymous. 
somewhat, right? There's still serial numbers. There, there's still potentially the vehicle upon which you're retrieving it that can that can provide um, traceability, but the actual instrument itself, short cash, right? The the paper dollar or the coin. Um, but I do think that there is. Um, I, I I just bring that up because. Um, there is, at least in the context of the United States, um, certain legal regime that allows for access to all of that type of information, whether it's the, you know, cell phone data location, if you're tracking someone, whether it's where you're purchasing in a store or perhaps a video recording, whether it's a small bank transaction, we do have due process, which um, has certain legal requirements for how the government um, or law enforcement may access those records. Um, but that is, uh, I think today, uh, and I forget who said it earlier, the boundaries of that are being tested in a digital world because those that due process was not constructed um, with that type of access and data collection in mind. So I think um, cash as a fully anonymous vehicle is it's just slightly skewed when you put it into context of how it's being used in a modern world and the ability to access today what you weren't um, you know, a couple decades ago, if you are looking to collect that data. And that's just on the um, government and law enforcement side. If you're looking at the commercial side um, and the collection and selling of data, which government players also have access to purchasing certain um, PII, uh, for example, um, that this calls into question, right? Um, even if that cash is private, if you're accessing it through a bank account, which is collecting PII or through a perhaps um, a regulated fintech, um, who's collecting PII, that then that data is potentially also being sold through different mechanisms. So I, I just get, I like to call that out because I think it's not as simple as cash is fully anonymous and CBDCs should be fully anonymous. And I know that's what we're here to talk about today, um, but just a nuance in the language perhaps. Um, and then, um, so sorry, Anne Sophie, the question was, how do we work together to build these networks? Uh, so this is where I like to point out, I, I say there are swim lanes for everyone um, in this kind of, if you like to think of it as a revolution and evolution, uh, um, choose your favorite label. Um, but right now, I think what we're witnessing globally is a lot of experimentation, both defining of objectives by economies. What are we trying to do? What is our citizens' relationship with money? How do they want to access it? Um, how do we maintain our remit around public money and distributing public money, um, financial stability, et cetera, really defining those objectives as we are seeing society start to change into this digital state, um, and then experimentation. And so the BIS was discussed earlier in terms of pilots that they're doing in collaboration with central banks, um, some central 
central banks are just going central bank to central bank for experimentation outside of the BIS um, or within their own domestic payment systems. Um, and you're starting to see the ability of a couple different trends, experimentation with tokenization and what type of efficiencies that could offer um, a push to bring as many economies as possible, including the United States into instant payment systems. Um, we entered that sphere with the most of the rest of the world last week, which is really exciting with the launch of FedNow. Um, and um, emerging economies being able to leapfrog a bit faster um, in terms of experimentation and deployment um, because they don't have as much of, I would, I would call kind of the legacy bucket, legacy technology, legacy policy, um, kind of the impact of IT modernization within their systems can be contained a bit more. Um, so you're seeing kind of some token native systems, for example, start to bubble up. So for the next couple of decades, lots of different systems, lots of work defining objectives, and how do we connect and knit together all of those disparate efforts so that we aren't developing systems in silo, right? That's the work that I see about how we start to connect and build potentially a couple decades down the road, a global system um, that is fully technically connected in a way that recognizes the respective legal jurisdictions of each of the economies in play and allows for every economy to have control, of course, um, over um, of financial stability and um, additional geopolitical implications they may or may not want to engage in in terms of impact on payment systems. So that's my general catch-all. I don't have a specific solution other than to say um, there are a lot of existing bodies that are doing this work right now, both in the technical space and in the policy space. And the more that that work can be done in an open sourced or transparent matter, um, manner, the better it will be um, because we'll be sharing information and building from each other's learnings, um, again, versus working in that siloed manner. Thank you. So Jonas, what technological approaches are being employed to preserve privacy and in the development and implementation of CBDCs at the moment? Yeah, there are of course, you know, lots of different technological choices. And again, to be clear of what we are talking uh, on privacy is that I current or what I'm now referring to is really some of the, you know, kind of cash-like or cash-similar privacy. Because, you know, let's say the privacy we have with digital forms of money today, you can use every, every technology for that, right? Just to be compliant with um, data protection regulation or others. So I really mean a higher degree of privacy, which can become uh, and can be similar as to the privacy of, of cash. And from my perspective, there are two different ways um, how you can approach the topic. One is the, is the approach you use like a hardware-based solution. So you can, for example, imagine you have like a, um, a specific smart card or you have like, you know, hardware like, like a mobile phone and in this environment you have in this environment, you have uh, some kind of, you know, other like environment where you can basically execute only specific and specific computation, which means, you know, that this kind of preserves the data because the data sits kind of within this, this piece of hardware. Let's, let, let's put it, you know, uh, let's put it in a simplified form. And this is like one way how you can do this um, via, you know, as I said, cards, phones, or, you know, such, such uh, yeah, kind of chips in the end. That's the hardware side. And the other side is the software side, right? So here you can use 
Um, and this is also something like um, like David referred to before. If you look into the the world of of cryptocurrencies, there are some very very interesting cryptographic innovations going on. And one, for example, is zero knowledge proofs that we actually use from fully anonymous um, cryptocurrencies, so the privacy coins. Um, but what you can actually do is you can take this technology and bring this into a world of of CBDC, right? And take this cryptographic tools bring this to the world of CBDC where you, for example, do not, you know, prove, for example, that you sent um, 200 um, digital euros um, to, to, to Jennifer, for example, but that you just prove that, um, you know, the amount you sent is the same that another person received, right? And this is in terms of privacy, of course, a very, very substantial difference if you know the amount, the person, the date, or if you know just, you know, a confirmation, a proof of specific information which are relevant, like this can be the transaction amount or that, that no new money has been created or things like that, right? So that's that's the, the zero knowledge side of things. And then you also have in this software-based um, kind of um, bucket I'm talking about, you also have like other cryptographic techniques, like for example, uh, blind signatures also, you know, heavily deployed in, in cryptographic systems that you can use for CBDC. And for example, the BIS is currently experimenting with. So yeah, lots of, you know, promising tech stack, um, but in the end it's, the thing is, it's it's like not a technological decision how much privacy you want, right? It's a very very political topic how much privacy you want to have in this uh, in this CBDC system. So the technology is basically ready to have all kinds of privacy, and now it's really you know with the politic politicians and stakeholders to decide, hopefully in a very open and democratic process, um, how large the degree of privacy or how large the cash similarity in terms of privacy will be in the in the end. So, Stephen, what are the current approaches and values being discussed or agreed upon different jurisdictions with regard to privacy and CBDCs? Yeah, so I would say there's, um, so if we let's just take Europe uh, to start with. So, we've got um, GDPR, which is a, a regulation that applies across the whole region. But if you go within the different countries within Europe, you'll find there are quite different attitudes. To privacy. A lot of this is cultural. A lot of it is about, you know, the values of a particular country, location, whatever. And so there'll be some there'll be some places um, where people have a high degree of trust in their government, for example. And so for them, um, the fact that the government sees certain certain pieces of data or manages certain data uh, or sees certain things about their um, their behaviour is fine. And they trust the government, and they feel as though you know that's that's uh, you know their liberties are not in, their, their liberties are not being challenged. They're able to, able to go about their lives, and everything's fine. In a in a different country, that won't be the case. You know, in the UK, for example, we have uh, I think the general I just I forget what I said. Maybe not the general view. I think that the, the view of some of some people is that we shouldn't. Um, trust the government. We believe in small government, and we want the government to have as little access to information about citizens as possible. And so that leads to quite a different outcome. You know, the 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 sort of the I guess the 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 outline statement. We want to live in a in a in an environment where privacy is respected is the same in both places. But how it plays out in practice is quite different because of the local context. Um, and so what that means, you know, is that the, the, uh, the tools and apparatus that we have to manage CBDC systems, and in particular, I'm thinking about digital identity, is quite different in different places. 
So in the UK, we have no national identity infrastructure. There is no national register of citizens in the UK, whereas in other countries there may be. Um, and so if you were, if you had a requirement in your CBDC, for example, to say, well, okay, we need to check uh, that um, an individual can only hold a certain amount of CBDC, we want to place a limit on, uh, on the CBDC holding of, of, of an individual. Um, and you allow access to the CBDC through multiple intermediaries or PSPs, there is no way of determining whether if, if I've got an account with two, two or a relationship with two PSPs, there's no way of determining that those are the same because there is no single register. Um, and so I think there are some challenges in, 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 uh, in, in certain countries because of the apparatus that are there that will play out in the, in the, in the CBDC system. Um, the other thing I thought it would be useful just to think about is, you know, what, what does it actually mean to hold, what, or what will it mean to hold CBDC? And we maybe come on to this a bit later as well. Um, I, so you need to understand I'm, I'm a fairly, I, I come from a sort of technological background. So I like to think about the nuts and the bolts and how things kind of fit together. So in my mind, the way that we'll hold CBDC is we'll have some keys, some cryptographic keys. Those cryptographic keys will be bound somehow to the, to the token or the value in the database. Now, those keys, by definition, are, are, are a form of identification. You know, those, those keys will be unique to me. If I have one set of keys, then maybe there's a way that you can um, you know, track that, okay, you may not know it's Steve, but you might know there's a person here that you can track through the system. Um, taking you know, the privacy-enhancing technologies that Jonas was just talking about into, into consideration as well. And then, of course, if I've got requirements for um, compliance where I have to do some KYC or something on the individual, then that, those keys, in effect, become a proxy for, they become like a national identity register, potentially, within the CBDC system. So I think there are some important, you know, understanding how all of that fits together and how it plays with whatever apparatus is in, in a particular country today and what the cultural requirements are, as opposed to the kind of legal requirements, um, is really important to get to get sorted to make this all kind of work. Otherwise, um, people just won't trust the thing; they won't use it. They, you know, or or the the privacy the privacy hacks will. Uh, um, I shouldn't call them hacks, should I? The uh, the people that are concerned about privacy, um, rightly so, will um, get the wrong end of the stick, which happens, you know, from time to time, and then. That will cause, you know, again, um, problems that, that that may not be justified, or cause the cause the thing to to not be as successful as we would otherwise hope it would be. I see. Thank you, uh, Jonas. How would the CBDC landscape function with varying regulations and differing values concerning privacy? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And ultimately, we know that in every jurisdiction, every CBDC will look different, right? So this, this is related to, of course, different environments, different financial sectors, you know, in developing economies, the financial sector is typically less advanced than in, you know, advanced economies, um, obviously. And we also know that in specific countries and jurisdictions, different values are more important than others, right? So this is also why I'm sure we will not see 
in our jurisdiction, um, a CBDC that has like really, really high privacy, but for some countries and for some people, it's just not not out of that 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 kind of importance, right? So it's really regional, I would say, or national values that are represented there. And this also holds for like, this is also obviously represented in regulation, right? Because regulation is basically there to set out the, the ground rules for specific payment systems. And this will also be different in lots of uh, in lots of different jurisdictions. I think what's quite interesting to look at is also how, you know, the privacy landscape in the context of CBDCs looks like today because we do know that there are currently four cbdc projects live so most of them really in smaller economies like bahamas jamaica eastern caribbean and also nigeria and for them they follow like an approach which i think generally is, is quite intuitive and also quite smart which is namely you can transact in a or you have two different tiers basically you can transact low value payment with a higher degree of privacy and then high value payment with a lower degree of privacy, which I think is quite intuitive from an you know AML perspective, for example, because as David said before, I think it shouldn't be you know fully an anonymous CBDC, right? Um, but of course, privacy should, from my perspective, be higher um, for small payments. I think that's like a positive thing we observe, and this is also captured in the um, European regulatory proposal on the digital euro, which um, basically proposes a similar one. Here, ever I think two important uh, things need to be considered one of course is how long uh, how large the limit is right because that has substantial impact if i can just buy you know i don't know two apples with this amount or if i can buy you know a, a medium medium car for that so of course the limit and this will have i'm sure a very very um yeah um, political very very intense political debate to figure out the limit and the second again this is Going back to the question we we try to you know set set the scene in the beginning was what does full what does privacy mean and what does higher privacy mean right and here in these other jurisdictions for example it's typically said that you just for example need um, a mobile phone number for these small payments right you don't need to be fully KYC you don't need to do a bank account but you need a mobile phone number and here I agree that this is a higher privacy but this goes more back. Um, to what we just referred before to pseudonymity right so it's no anonymity um, and i personally would also wish for a higher degree of privacy where really for you know low payments you know be it zero knowledge proofs or other techniques can ensure that there is really this cash like privacy in the end because i think this is even stronger than you know having this um, pseudonymous privacy maybe to name it and i think this will be you know even even beneficial also from a privacy preserving perspective and also for a society that demands privacy as a very important requirement for a cbdc i i, I think there's quite often an asymmetry in payments so if we take a normal retail transaction um the fact that i'm buying a bottle of wine from a liquor store you know the fact that it's me shouldn't be important no one should need to know that but the tax authority might want to know that the liquor store has sold, you know, 500 bottles of wine today. And so there's an asymmetry in the sense that, you know, that it's not that, but there are two parties involved in the transaction. The person make, you know, the party making the purchase and the other party, the, the person being paid. Um, and in fact, you know, that in many cases, the, the privacy of the payer is important, but the privacy of the payee is not important or in fact you know needs needs that data needs to be collected for some other regulatory purposes it doesn't obviously that's that's specific to retail but i think um it's not the case of 
the low value, high value is interesting, but I think it's a bit more nuanced than that. And there's another aspect that we have to think of is AML and CFT regulations. So David, which trade-offs exist between protection, uh, protecting personal information and ensuring compliance with AML and CFT regulations? And is it possible to find a new way with CBDC to detect AML and CFT? So I think um, uh, I think not only is it possible to find a, a new way to approach AML and, and CFT, but I think it's I think it's essential that we do. I think it's a responsibility going forward that we do. Uh, you know the. The, the amounts of money estimated to be um, moving through the payments infrastructure associated with money laundering and criminal finance and terrorism are astronomically huge. Um, you know, the, the, a, a bigger a bigger percentage of global GDP than than most countries have. Um, it's it's extraordinary. And you know, we started the AML regulations in the 1980s when the world became more joined up from a payments infrastructure perspective and. Um, as we were saying right at the beginning, you know, payments infrastructures have, have grown iteratively based on, on you know, not, not, to any, not to any grand design, but just through necessity. Um, and, and the regulations have grown in the same way. Um, and what we see with the regulations is um, all parties have best endeavours. You, know, you know, banks, as, as Steve was saying earlier, banks have a reputational risk they don't want to be associated with criminal activity or terrorism and such like regulators clearly have a responsibility to protect societies from from bad actors so nobody wants this to happen and yet the regulations are demonstrably not working to to prevent the problem we have we absolutely have to look at it again so um now what does that mean well i, I think it goes into some of the discussion that we've had today which is there are there are different stakeholders with an interest in different types of data associated with a payment. Steve Steve was giving a good example earlier in a in a in a in a retail transaction. Um, if you look at any any types of transaction, there are there are different parties who have an interest in it and a, and a legitimate interest in it. Um, a, assuming that um, that we we believe in in that society has a, an important role to play. Um, so. Who are we have to define? We have to look again at who those stakeholders are and what data should they be able to see about the transaction. And that doesn't mean that they need to be able to see the identity information for the transaction. There is lots of what, what might be described as metadata, data about the transaction that can be used to detect um, types of criminality. Um, but what we, what we have to do is, is think about you know, what information is created. Who are, the who are the legitimate stakeholders who should be able to see parts of that information? And then think about the governance structure by which they, they look at that data and uh, how they aggregate that data and use that data. Um, so I, I, I think, um, you know, so sometimes when you read people's concerns about CBDC, they, they see it as a sort of Orwellian world that's being created by a big brother government and big brother state that wants to impose its evil will on people. I, I, don't, I don't see that view of the world. I, I see it the other way around. I see it that in a democratic societies, we're very fortunate who actually, they work for us. <laughs> we get to vote for them. We get to tell them what we, what we want. Um, but in reality, when you look at any central bank, you look at the, the Bank of England who we've interacted with here, um, 
there's a small team of people working on a huge problem, uh, you know, a huge challenge, a huge opportunity, not, not a problem. Let's be positive about it. It's, it's, uh, it's incumbent on us to be having this discussion, to be thinking this, these things through. It's incumbent on the Digital Pound Foundation to be, uh, to be trying to consider the, 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 um, the principles by which this should work and then informing each other. And I believe, you know, across the, the United States and across Europe and the UK, we all share the same liberal values. Um, there might be, as Jonas says, you know, nuances and differences between us, but the basic principles around how, how payments infrastructure should work are, are going to be broadly, broadly the same. Um, so the more, the more we share, the, the better we will do. The alternative, of course, is going to be, um, um, you know, other regimes without perhaps the same liberal values will come up with payments infrastructures that, that work to their, to their ends. Um, and, um, you know, would that necessarily be what everybody in the, in the liberal Western world would want? So I think it's incumbent on us to, uh, to do it. I'd love to add to that, and Sophie, um, both what David just said and what Yona said before. Um, this is so exciting. This is a very exciting opportunity in front of us. And I think if we are able to go back as societies and look at, again, what it is we're trying to achieve through our privacy regimes and really take a hard look at how that's being executed today and where perhaps it has become a cumbersome, overly cumbersome, inefficient process that's not getting us the outcomes that we originally set out to achieve. Um, that this technology, and I mean kind of the bucket of emerging technologies that Yona started to talk on, could help us better achieve those objectives. Um, and further protect privacy. And I think that is something that if you look at all the surveys that are happening uh, globally around CBDCs, privacy in its variant forms of definition um, is always in the top three. It's a top three concern, period, across the globe. Um, so being able to figure out how to better protect against illicit activity and better protect individual privacy is something that I think could be a unifying factor um, or benefit of central bank digital currencies. Um, I would propose that we spend a lot more time investing resources into understanding those emerging technologies, um, making sure that they are scalable, applying them in real life use cases um, through experimentation and whatnot. And then conversely, I think there is a human side of this discussion um, that's equally as, as important as investment in um, tech research, which is to say our frameworks are decades and many decades in some instances old. And there is a cultural shift that has to happen, both in terms of trusting that the technology is going to be able to get you the results that you need in terms of law enforcement and, um, you know, bad actor tracking, um, and um, that we are able to then modernize our government, both in terms of internal technology, but also in terms of process and operations to support the use of this new technology to achieve these objectives. So there is a, what can the tech do? Can we replicate it? Can we scale it? Let's invest and understand. 
And then there's a human and institutional aspect of what does the change management look like? What does internal modernization look like? And can our operations reflect and support what could happen with this technology? Um, so as with all things CBDC, very complex and uh, intertwined um, and will not happen overnight, nor should it um, when we're talking about public money. Um, but uh, I, I think there are many layers and I would just um, go back uh, to something that Yunus said um, before David, um, if we think about CBDC and really take a product mindset, um, it is important for our decision makers on the policy side not to be making decisions in a vacuum. It is important for our technologists not to be saying that zero knowledge proof will provide anonymity and solve all of these problems for CBDC. We need all of the stakeholders to be working together around generating objectives and use cases and, and testing in their respective capacities. But I think it is only that way that we can fully reflect values in this digital money um, if it is solely driven or predominantly driven by one stakeholder group, we go back to that would anything that's released under those conditions be adopted and trusted? And we know money, of course, is a social construct um, that relies on the trust of its users. So um, I just, this to me is the most exciting aspect around how do we keep public money relevant in a digital future and what it's able to do to satisfy um, and enhance, I think, the um, stakeholder needs are, uh, around the table. And, and I think maybe to add, add to that, Jen, I think that's exactly also why the work you're doing is so relevant to do also really this, this tech prototyping, right? So to do the experiments and also I really, really love what you said about, you know, this mindset and just be open also from a central bank perspective, because also when we talk to central banks, a lot of them are open towards these new innovations, look into this and we even see papers from central banks in Asia out there that, you know, document their, their um, testing results on this novel technology. That's great. But on the other hand, I also have to say lots of central banks we talk to are not that open towards these new things, right? So there my feeling is it's more, well, we just use the system how it is today. And this is like the basis. And then we, we issue like a digital form of central bank money for everybody on top. So I think we should also always be, be open-minded and at least look at this technology. This don't mean, doesn't mean that everybody needs, every country should employ this. And maybe that some technologies are not even ready yet. But this open mindset, I think this is so, so crucial because as you said, Jen, we are currently laying the groundwork for the you know, future monetary systems of the next decades. So now is the, is the time to exactly be open and test this out. Thank you. I would like to pick up another term that we have been using, but we didn't go into it uh, quite a lot. It's digital identities. Stephen, you as an expert, what is identity in the context of CBDC and KYC processes? Well, D David on the call is also an expert, so um, I'm sure he'll he'll pick me up if I miss anything out. Um, I, I was going to make the observations, quite interesting listening to the, the bit of conversation we've just had. Um, that, that actually there's a lot of work going on kind of in a parallel universe. Um, there's, there's a whole uh, group of people, stakeholders, companies, governments, looking at um, the topic of digital identity and in particular exploring uh, something that's sometimes referred to as uh, self-sovereign identity, but the idea that you can issue um, cryptographic credentials to individuals 
that they can then use to assert things about themselves in a, in a, in a sort of in, in the digital economy. And I think there's a lot of what's being developed there um, is highly relevant to, to the sorts of problems we're talking about in CBDC. I mean, in, in a sense, you know, if you had a, a digital identity wallet where you could collect credentials and then share them, that's almost like half your CBDC system. You know, it's 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 the, the, the bit that's missing is then how do you then attach that identity to the to, to the asset, the, to the instrument? Um, and so I think there's a, there's a lot that we can learn from that work and it would serve us all well to make sure there's you know appropriate communications and, and cross cross reading uh, between those initiatives. You know, in the in the digital identity world, um, there's already well established principles, privacy principles, because identity systems are they're about um, um, enabling access and, and building trust, but they're also about protecting privacy. And so things like data minimization, selective disclosure. Those sorts of things are enshrined in in various you know sets of privacy principles. Uh, OECD have principles. There's uh, you know, PIPADA, which is the, the uh, Privacy Regulation in Canada, has a well-defined set of principles. So there's a lot there that we can learn learn from. Um, the uh, the other thing I was going to say as well is that when you look at a system, a payment system like the CBDC, the, the danger is you think, oh, the identity bit is just the thing you do at the beginning, the KYC process, um, and and as I started to kind of explain earlier, that isn't the case. Identity pervades the whole thing. At every point in the in the process, you need to know: is this a trusted transaction? You may not need to know, like the you know the, the, the name of the address and the date of birth of the person that you're transacting with, but you need to have enough trust that this is a this is a, a, a real piece of value that it really belongs to the person that you're transacting with. They're entitled to perform that transaction, and that means that. That there has to be some of that, some some uh, that identity. You know, you have to think about how that how identity plays through that whole end to end thing. Um, when we talk about AML compliance as well, you know, it's not just know your customer at the beginning. There's ongoing customer due diligence, which runs through the life cycle of a person's interaction with a with a with a financial institution or any other regulated uh, AML regulated entity. And so, um, thinking about the overall architecture looking at how we can learn from the great work that's being done in uh, in, in that kind of uh, self-sovereign identity space. A lot of it's being done through W3C, which is the international standards body. And the, the, other, the other important thing I was going to, um, to mention is in Europe, um, the, 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 the European, um, I guess it's the Commission, have, um, have realised the connection between these two things, which is why you've got the uh, European identity, sorry, the, the EIDAS and the European Digital Identity Wallet initiatives being linked very closely with the work that's being done by the ECB on the on the digital euro you know and, and it's really interesting that in in Europe you've got these two um, you know really important initiatives happening in parallel which hopefully will inform each other so that we just, can uh, yeah go on David just to add to what you're saying Steve I think um, you know one of the one of the challenges is how do you bind together the account in this case the CBDC account and, and the person who's controlling that account. Mm. Uh, the, the, uh, you know, Steve refers to ongoing customer due diligence, but really the, the challenge that any you know, modern day financial institution has is who is the person who's actually authorizing that payment? Um, mm. And um, you know, this is where we have to think about, I know biometric technologies, everybody would be, uh, you know, that's another, another hour and a half uh, discussion on this call if we want to get into that one. But 
if you go back to the conversation about cash and Stephen and Jennifer were discussing about, you know, how private is cash and, you know, how surveilled are you when you're when you're doing that transaction? Ultimately, it comes down to who is the person handing over the cash? And in the case of a, a electronic payment, who is who is the person behind the, the keyboard or the mobile phone that is making that payment? And, and um you know, it's a it's a an un, unenviable task for a financial institution to have to know who's controlling bank accounts. There are plenty of mule accounts out there that of people who open an account in one name and then pass control mm-hmm. over to others. So we have to think about what the what the responsibilities are of people who are, you know, the owners controllers of accounts and and how they're using those accounts as well as their rights from a privacy perspective. Um, so I think biometric technologies, um, you know, we're we're now all very familiar with those. The principles that Steve set out through self-sovereign identity and, and such like, you know, there's a lot of principles that we can draw on to, to build out um, the, the rules for CBDC. Uh, but we have, to, we have to balance the rights and responsibilities. I think that's where we open the conversation of, of the individual actors. And, and it is on, in, you know, on us to encourage the central banks to design schemes uh, that reflect the needs of the whole of society and not just, um, uh, you know, reflecting an individual's right to privacy. I think the, the other important thing which has tripped up the identity, let, let, let's not pretend that the identity uh, world is, is all sorted and fine and dandy, you know, it's sort of bed of roses, it's not. Um, but one of the other, one of the other uh, areas where the identity, you know, folks have, have perhaps not done as well as they could have done in the past is around the amount of responsibility and the expectation you place on individuals. Um, and this goes back to um, the point you made earlier, David, around um, you know uh, the, the the privacy terms that you get thrown up. You know, there's a, there's a a lazy assumption that that's good enough. You know, it's not good enough. People, you know, probably in a lot of cases, not really able to understand the the, the, the full nuances of everything that they're doing in a digital transaction. So they need responsible parties to provide them with technology that they can trust that works in the, in, a, in a in a responsible reliable manner um, and obviously in the in the identity space that's something that we're working on and, and that needs to be also be reflected in whatever's built from a cbdc system and maybe Anne-Sophie, if i could just add one one sentence to that i know the time time is running um steve because i think it's it's really really important like the the values that the combination of a like a digital identity also based on SSI maybe and you know some 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 uh, CBDC can bring but I think what we should also not forget and this is really important at least what I what I see and hear a lot in Germany is really also with the EU, EU European wallet basically even more the concern that now this is the you know one of the steps to go to enter the surveillance state right because now the government knows the knows the ID and also the financials and of course we know that this is like just not how the CBDC system is is set up right but I think it needs a lot of education in this regard and yes. it also needs on this on this wallet side you know the the privacy preserving pieces be it what you said like on selective disclosure that we can actually like turn the wheel or, or, or to turn the coin around and basically say hey we can actually have a digital ID and improve your privacy because we're not sharing you know again uh, what your name is, where you're based, what your address is, but just specific attributes, right? And I think this is some kind of narrative that, that from my side at least, would be very valuable in the discussion, and of course also in the political, uh, in the process yeah. of setting up such a system. In, in some places, I mean, I've seen this in Canada. Um, there's been um, 
the people that have been involved in digital identity have stopped using the term identity because it's misunderstood. You know, it, it kind of brings all this baggage with it. And so they're going, they're talking about things like verification because at the end of the day, it's about saying, well, okay, what's, what's the data that you quite reasonably should be asked to present in order to facilitate a particular transaction? And can you present that in a way that's secure, reliable, verifiable? And that's it. You know, we're, you know, if, if, if all that I need to know about somebody is their, is their age bracket, all that I'll get to know is their age bracket. And, and that's it, you know, end of. And so I think um, we, you know, the, the term identity itself is problematic. And as, as you say, Jonas, there's, um, you know, we, we need to work really hard at making, at explaining what we're doing, that we're not, we're not building a surveillance system here. And there's a lot of people working very hard to make sure that isn't the case. Um, and there obviously needs to be need to be checks and balances to ensure that that's, that that is indeed true. But um, you know, explaining it and making it as transparent as possible is, is really important. Steve, I I could not agree more. I would say starting again from current state, kind of how we started this conversation around what's the current state of privacy in the payment system, what is the current state of digital identity frameworks or the kind of your existence of digital identity or digital identity application, whatever the right language is, would be really helpful because you can even use today as an example, I would say in the United States, um, if you go, uh, if you fly globally, you are probably walking up to an, an airport um, gate and you, they are using biometrics to scan and identify and verify you, right? Mm -hmm. And who is that? Who is that that's doing the scanning? Where are they getting the data that they're accessing it from? Um, and then where is that data storaged after it happened? Stored after it happened? And I, I imagine if you, you know, were to line up five U.S. citizens, they would each have a very different and particular reaction just to that specific event. But at the end of the day, they will scan their face and they will get on the airplane, right? So kind of back to this, like, here's how it's manifesting today. When you go online, you probably have thousands of digital identities just from signing up for newsletters and shopping at various stores you are comfortable with that, right? Um, so getting folks to understand where they are today and then how that could be improved using technology in this future state, instead of saying, you know, you live in a fully identi digital identity-free environment right now in the United States. Um, if there's CBDC, the government will be able to track and access and limit all of your activity, right? So just that level setting. The other thing I will say is if it can be collected, it can be accessed. And this is why the conversation between technology and law or policy or regulation cannot be separated because it is a fully rational reaction that, yes, even if the government um, is not holding my PII in a CBDC system, even if the government only sees transaction level, they can still access it. It can still, a bad actor could come in even in the government, just like they do in the private sector or the true hacker environment. And 
um, access my data. And that is concerning. So I think education and plain English around how data, if it is being collected, is stored and accessed is really important here. Um, because, you know, at the end of the day, it's kind of the you build it, they will come. If we're if everything's digitized and the data is being collected universally, how do we protect that for individuals? Um, yeah, and I, I think I, I, actually it's kind of um, I don't counterintuitive is not quite the right word, but actually, you know, we, we all often talk about removing silos. You actually need silos, silos of responsibility, world of layers. Yeah. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so you can say, look, the uh, the person operating the ledger or the organization operating the ledger, this is what they can see, and this is what they that's can right. Do. And the, the technical and the governance, the regulatory controls ensure that that's the case. Um, mm -hmm. The the I don't know the um, um, the authority that's looking after AML compliance. They have a different view, and they can do certain things, and it's mm -hmm. well defined. Um, mm -hmm. And I think you know, understanding what those silos of responsibility are, and ensuring that both that at all levels, at the governance level, at the technical level, at the commercial level, if that's relevant as well, because obviously, as, as, you, as you mentioned, um, uh, you know, that's, a, that's that can be a big incentive for certain behaviours that at all levels those things line up with the defined silos of responsibility that exist. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we have looked at privacy and CBDCs from a legal perspective, from a technological perspective. We have looked into digital identities, into AML, CFT and KYC processes. So my last question is now to all of you. How do you imagine a CBDC solution in 2014? What is the perfect solution at the end for all of us and maybe cross-jurisdictional, cross-technological, like globally? Jennifer, we start with you. Um, again, back to my crystal ball. Um, so let's see, 2040. So we're talking about 15 years from now, give or take. I think we're going to see new technologies that we probably aren't even imagining today. 15 years is a long time in terms of um, technological innovation. Um, I think we are going to see the world continue to digitize exponentially. I think um, a lot of this is driven, as we touched on a little bit, by, um, I don't want to use the word consumer, but perhaps citizen behavior, right? Um, and um, we are seeing our citizens want to access a variety of stores of value um, in many different um Uh, shapes and form and be able to move between a digital and a um, real world um, pretty seamlessly. So in 15 years, I imagine we will be on the other end of that spectrum, which is more fully digitized, moving more seamlessly um, between a, a kind of a virtual reality and our existing reality. Um, and I think we will see a lot of innovation in the financial space, both in types of stores of value and in um, payment systems. I, 15 years, I think we will see CBDC uh, deployed in some shape or size in the majority of um, global economies. I'll put it that way in 15 years. Thank you. David, mm -hmm. how about you? Uh, yeah, I am. I, um... 
uh, I don't know if this is a dystopian view or, or, or a pessimistic view, but um, um, you know, I mean, I, I'm optimistic that we, we will have a, a CBDC in, in, in the UK. There are a lot of, there's a bit of complacency. Um, you know, there was a House of Lords report that said, uh, you know, CBDC, uh, um, uh, a, a solution looking for a problem, which felt to me like a very uh, com complacent um, approach and, uh, to, to CBDC. Uh, so there's a danger that, you know, we in the liberal West, you know, suffer from complacency, think that everything's all right, don't recognise the fundamental shift that is the move to digital technologies and, and the implications of that. Um, and we don't, um, we don't invest in it and, and we don't, we don't reimagine what that governance structure should be, reimagine what those roles and responsibilities should be. And, and we end up in a world where we have, um, you know, cryptocurrencies that aren't regulated by states that act in ways that perhaps don't run to the principles that we would we would want or indeed we have nation states that, that build cryptocurrencies that meet their own political ends and um you know so the, there is a potential you know that um uh you know money being so fundamental to to our economies and and societies um that we you know we, we drift away from liberal democracy democratic values and and into despotism <laughs> you know you could say there are plenty of plenty of signs of that happening um so that's one one possibility for 2040 um i think it's uh you know as i say i think it's important that digital pound foundation is doing what it's doing trying to have this discussion likewise the digital euro station and digital um um, um digital dollar excuse me <laughs> uh, project um, I think it's really important that we all we all speak together, share that share the values that we that we all um, have and, and the principles that come from those. And uh, I think in 2014 there will be there will be CBDCs operating in our in our jurisdictions that are, are broadly similar, but we'll have those differences that we we described during the conversation. Thank you, Steve. How about you? So I'm going to answer this question in two ways. Firstly, I want to look back. So um, a concise period, I think we, we, we trialled, we built, built in the lab uh, a terminal to do a contactless payment transaction in, I think, 2003 and, um, or, or around about then. But uh, contactless payments didn't really take off until uh, they were accepted in London. On, um, on the tra transport for London, which was probably around, I guess, 20, 2012, so 10 years later. And then actually they really took off during the pandemic. And so, um, you know, the, that, the observations to say that, you know, things take time. I think sometimes, you know, it, we, there's a bit of patience needed. And also I think understanding and predicting the way that things are going, going to, to pan out can, can, be, can be quite difficult. So making predictions about the future is always dangerous. I guess that's what I'm saying. It's the first observation. The second thing is to say, well, look, if you look at the direction of travel um, in the digital world in general, so um, everything becoming massively connected, think about IoT, think about the metaverse, think about all the stuff that's going on in AI. You know, we've got a desperate need. And, and you know, and, and you know, you keep thinking, you know, how bad has it got to get before we before we realize we actually have to fix this properly um and and so i guess my my desire my plea is that you know cdc is part of building a better digital world we have the opportunity to build something well here and we have to do it otherwise you know i mean it's already the case that 
you know, a significant part of my life is spent dealing with nonsense, you know, deleting spam email. I mean, what, what's that all about, right? It's just a complete waste of time. And so we have to do things better. And I can see this is part of that. Thank you. So Jonas. Yeah, I think, or maybe let's start what I hope to see in 2040. So I hope that on a global scale, we do have like, it doesn't sound that sexy, but really like efficient payment systems where the fees are really down, you know, where all these different currencies or forms of money, which might be CBDC on the one hand side, which might be stable coins, normal deposit, tokenized deposits, crypto, which is all basically interoperable. So you can convert them kind of in real time. Fees are down for transactions, which, you know, from currently on average, I think it's six to seven percent globally. And of course, the desire is and it's a challenging topic, of course, but that this is going going down. So I just hope that we get a more efficient and more inclusive and then, you know, that's also like a welfare improving, you know, financial systems globally. And of course, I think that's also very important. I hope that we also capture all and, and are open-minded what I mentioned before <laughs> supporting Chen, Chen here. When it comes to innovation, really got the things right. So also, you know, that we, we got like the connections to like to important use cases, which we might think about today, be it like IoT, machine to machine, maybe also DeFi, Web3, you know, who knows what's next. And as I said, there will be use cases in 2040 where we don't know today that they exist, but we need forms of money for these use cases, right? Um, and this is, I think, what I hope what I hope to see. Um, and on the CBDC side, I just hope to see we have CBDCs also here that are you know, interoperable with each other on a global scale so that you can swap, you know, a digital pound against a digital dollar, against a digital euro for very low fees. That's at least my hope from a personal perspective. And of course, also having the CBDCs. And I think this is also what we are fighting for at the DIA, really to represent values of society, provide a value add for people, um, you know, uh, also take care of, of, of civil rights, of specific values. Also, you know, capture the user because that's my feeling today that, we don't look a lot at, at the user, you know, they are not, I mean, on average, not product people designing the CBDCs. Um, it's what, what I would say. So it should be a more user-centric design that in the end also, you know, there is just a benefit in for the user, which, you know, just, just preserves the value, the good values we are having today in our world. And yeah, that's at least what I would hope to see. Maybe not even in 2040, but maybe also already in 2030. I mean, seven years. So let's see. Thank you very much. I thank you for this very interesting discussion and all the information we got today um, and for this great panel. And yeah, I hope we meet before 2040 to discuss uh, again. <laughs> thank you, thank you very much, everyone. Thanks, Anne Sophie. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye.